Hey there, it's Mariah. I just wanted to give an extra trigger warning for this week's episode. This week, we will be having conversations about sexual violence, sexual assault, and abuse. So please, listener discretion is advised. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of Body to Burial. I'm Mariah. And I'm Nikki. We're just two regular true crime junkies who decided it was time to see crime from a new perspective. This is Body to Burial. I always feel like, and go. And scene. All right, Nikki. It's our, what what time is it? It's like our mid-afternoon record session. Isn't it nice? So for today, though... Let's move into this one because I am excited about this one because I didn't technically know that this was a specialty. Okay. But our guest today is Susan and Susan is a forensic nurse, which Hmm. basically is someone who provides care to victims of violence by doing like the medical forensic exam. Okay. This is the individual that is going to go through the process of administering a rape kit, um, collecting your clothes, like all of that stuff, which I didn't realize. And maybe this is just like, cause I'm naive and I don't really understand like hospital structures. I just thought it was like a regular nurse. So I'm curious to see like, if there's different education courses, like supplemental that they have to take to like be certified or if they're certified or what? Well, you got to think like they got to be like one of those souls that is very compassionate and sensitive because they kind of need that in that moment. Yeah. Did you ever watch Private Practice, the spinoff from Grey's Anatomy? No, I wasn't a real big Grey's Anatomy fan. I tried it. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, there was a spinoff and one of the doctors gets sexually assaulted in her office. Okay. Like, I think it was a patient. But anyways, it was a pretty like intense television portrayal of like a rape. Okay. And then afterwards they like show her having an interaction with a forensic nurse. Cause they're like taking her clothes and putting it in bags and taking her underwear and like Ugh. scraping under the fingernails, like that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was such a sad episode and like a sad scene because it's just like, I couldn't imagine ever being like, that vulnerable and scared. Yeah. And like, I would just want to forget the whole thing. Yeah. And I don't know how I would react if I was on the other end of that. Like, do you say anything? Are you just quiet? Like, because the mood in the room is not like cheerful. I would assume because it is an ongoing investigation. Like, I would assume you can't really like get too personal. You can't really say too much because it would be maybe an investigation, but I don't know. But it's like, I wonder if they do though, are they trying to extract some information so that they can relay that to police officers? Because it's easier. Like, cause here's the reality for me. Like if I was sexually assaulted in a manner that required that, I would want to talk to another girl about, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable telling a doctor what had happened to me. But, but like you said, I don't, maybe they're, they can't, have them say anything. And is there like another person in the room, like just watching? Yeah, this I would is think place? so. I would think they'd have to, cause it's just like now where they have, like, have you ever gone in for like your, your gyno, whatever yes, pap exam. Yes. And then, then they're like, okay, I'm going to bring my assistant in and they like hang out. That's just kind of how it is now. Yeah. They have to cover their bases. Yeah. I thought it was a little bit odd when that first started happening when I was going to like my gyno exam I'm like I'm already dying with the one person in here and now I gotta now I gotta look her see I never thought it was weird because get ready to have your mind blown I've never had girl gynecologists I always have a male so they always bring in another person but like really I don't want a girl gynecologist because I feel like then they're judging my Vagine. I know you love when I say vagina. Oh, please. So it makes I can't. Me feel, Cause it's just like going anywhere else where you're just like, mm. what? And she's like going to be judging you. I, I don't know. I feel more comfortable with a boy down there. Cause I'm like, yeah, he sees a billion. Like I can't imagine he's like real. And what if sure. you have like a super funky one and now he's told all of his doctor friends? I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. I hope mine's normal enough that there's nothing oh to tell. Oh my God. But I will put the disclaimer that when I did become pregnant, Okay. I did switch to a female OB for delivery because I didn't want a male telling me that like, you can do this when it's like, you've never done this. So you can't oh, wow. tell me at okay. all what I'm feeling. 
So totally random, and that's a little little known fact about me. That is literally <laughs> the weirdest thing I've ever heard. See, I've just yeah, literally never really thought about it. I didn't care. I had a guy and a girl deliver because I had switched insurance people when I had um, my second. So I couldn't have my first one, but I would have had my first one because he is gets his haircut at my salon. And um, mm. and then but he and he delivers all my he delivered all my friends babies. So then after, you know, the baby, I'd still see him. <laughs> Hey, see, that's awkward to me. That's <laughs> awkward to me. I would never want to see those people ever again. I mean, we got severely off topic here, but no. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess in this circumstance too, like I, I just wouldn't want a male forensic nurse, but um, enough about me and my oddities. Let me get Susan on with us so we can uh, figure out all about forensic nursing. Okay, great. I'm just really afraid that there's going to be a lot of vagie. I think there's going to be some body talk. So I'm just going to buckle up for that. Just prepare yourself for that. Hi, this is Susie. Hey, Susie, it's Mariah Hamilton. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Awesome. Susie, this is Nikki. Nikki, this is Susie. Hi. Hi, Nikki. Thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to speak with us. We're really excited to learn more about forensic nursing. What I like to do is usually have our guests try to explain their job in a very basic way. Sure. So forensic nursing is an aspect, a specialty of nursing where we specifically treat and care for victims of crime, particularly crimes such as uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, physical assault, gunshot wounds, stab wounds, and strangulation, things of that sort. Okay. And then, so Nikki and I, we were chatting offline and I guess this is just kind of like our ignorance about the nursing field. I didn't really understand that there was like a completely separate classification of nurses that did this. Like I just always assumed when you showed up at the the ER for one of those issues that just a nurse on the floor would see you, but that's incorrect. There seems like there's a class of like a group of you that are dedicated for those instances? Yes. Um, And it's funny you mentioned that because many nurses, as we're going to nursing school, don't realize about this specialty either. Sadly, we find out about it later. So we're we're trying to do a better job at introducing it in nursing school. But yes, um, there's a dedicated group of nurses, just like any other specialty, you know, cardiology, dermatology, labor and delivery, Mm -hmm. and that is forensics. And due to the nature of the crimes that are committed and the impact it has on the human, you know, the individual, both emotionally and physically, back in the, I believe, 70s, our pioneer of this specialty saw the intersection between nursing and the law as it pertains to these victims. And that's how mm-hmm. the discipline grew. And so as nurses in this specialty, we receive extensive training on you know, how to treat those victims, how to collect forensic evidence, photographs, testify in court, and some of those skills that aren't just second nature to a nurse or to medicine in general. And then, you know, taking into account the impact it's having on the person. So because we're nurses, you know, we have skills already in just dealing with trauma and emotions Mm -hmm. and being there for patients. And so it's a great blend of that criminal justice aspect, you know, as the patient goes through that and dealing with law enforcement and a crime that's been committed and then caring for that patient through that journey. So it actually makes complete sense, you know, once we start to uncover what really forensic nursing is. Kind of alluded to like there's different um, courses and accreditations. How much additional um, training do you go through? So, you know, on top of just being an an RN in general um, and receiving your nursing license and having some nursing experience, we then take up to 80 hours of initial training on Mm -hmm. content such as evidence collection, investigations, the court process, forensic photography, physical assessment, wounds, documenting, measuring those wounds. Um, We do that. And then 300 or more hours of clinical experience with, you know, like a preceptor or another experienced forensic nurse, you know, then you've gained enough experience to see patients. From there, um, once you've acquired those, you can go to seek board certification 
Okay, well, let's let's walk through a rape victim. If they come in and they've been sexually assaulted, walk us through what happened. Sure. So a patient would present to a hospital emergency department, typically, either on their own, you know, driven by friends or whatever, or in the accompaniment of law enforcement. They are quickly checked into the emergency room and, you know, by a physician, quickly assessed if there's any urgent medical needs, extensive bleeding that requires suturing or something in immediate concerns. So that's addressed. And then concurrently, then when it's determined that the patient is complaining of sexual assault, um, a forensic nurse is then paged. At that point, you know, we we meet the patient and we explain our role. Everything that we offer or can do for the patient is by patient choice. Even if a patient comes in with law enforcement, she can refuse. Our care is guided by choice. So we'll come in and say, hi, you know, my name is Susie. I am a forensic nurse and I am here to help you through this um, situation you're in. This, These are some things I can do. Are these things that you would like? And the patient, you know, most of the time says yes. Um, but they ha- there have been times where like, no, I don't want this. I don't want to go through this. I just want to go home. And there they go. Okay. If they do consent, you know, then what that entails, it's about um, a four or five hour process. Oh, wow. You know, I'm taking care of that patient and that patient only. Okay. So we get an extensive history about what happened, which entails very detailed intimate questions about what happened to them. Um, And we try to warn our patients ahead of time, like, this is what we're going to be asking. You may or may not want, you know, your family member, mom, dad, boyfriend in the room. When we ask Mm -hmm. specifically, we will ask questions like, you know, so what happened? And tell us what happened. And they will go on, you know, like, well, I was walking down the street and this man approached me and hit me and then he raped me. And we can't stop with just that statement. We have to get details. So what does rape mean? What part of his body penetrated you? Was it his penis in your vagina? Was it his penis in your anus? Fingers? Was it his mouth? What part of the body was touched or assaulted? Very intimate. Where did he ejaculate? Did he ejaculate? Was he wearing a condom? You know, like just details. So we gather that from the patient, the events, like what time? who was the assailant, you know, description of him if possible or any names that they want to share. And then, you know, anything like that was shared or said, we try to gather direct quotes from the patient as much as possible and document that. Is there a police officer or anybody else in the room while you're trying to get information about the assault? Typically not. Okay. Typically not. The The patient would have to give us permission to disclose anything like that to the police. Okay. Mm. But yeah, typically not. Um, We do that alone behind closed doors. Wow. So basically, is that part of your training is to be able to relay that to the police as well? Yeah. Yep. And how to, you know, deal with that, you know, as far as talking to the patient about those options, what is confidential, what isn't? Yeah. Where is the line between something that has to be shared versus not? So what has to be shared or reported to the authorities is anything that occurs to a minor child. So anyone under 18 typically, because, you know, it's a child. And in certain statutes, like in Wisconsin, where I work, um, some things are reportable wounds that are, say, from a gunshot wound or a knife wound. Those are reported to police. Typically, though, in those cases, police are already involved. So, you know, we don't have to navigate that. Um, And then, of course, any cases of elder abuse or um, vulnerable adult abuse, those are all mandatory reporting situations. After she shares what happened to her, you know, verbally, you know, and we gain consent, like, okay, based on what you told me, complaint of pain in this area, you have vaginal pain, I can do um, an exam, a speculum exam to see if there's any injuries. I can collect evidence from that area. And this is what that would look like, feel like. I can give you medications to prevent sexually transmitted infections if you're concerned about that, given the risk. I can give you medications to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. Put that all out there for the patient and they decide. Because some patients, the last thing they want is, say, a speculum inserted after they just were assaulted. And understandably so. We work with that. We tell them the risks and benefits like, hey, there might be some DNA um, and we might have a good chance of getting that with this exam. However, I understand you don't want a speculum inserted there. Totally get it. Um, We can do this some other way. I can collect your underwear for any drainage. I can just insert Q-tips in your 
vaginal area and collect it that way. We call those blind swabs where we're not seeing anything. We're just collecting. Are those less accurate? We're not able to visualize inside the vagina for, say, wounds. There's there's things called sure. microtrauma that can occur inside the vagina from you know, an assault or even from consensual sex, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. We can't tell by looking at somebody if they were assaulted. So that is one thing that people want to know, especially if they were, say, drugged and they don't know what happened and they just woke up. Mm -hmm. They're like, can you look at me and tell me what happened? And unfortunately, we can't. Um, and that's simply because our vaginas are designed to tolerate that type of activity. It doesn't know that it's being assaulted, right? It doesn't know that there's no consent. So the vagina may not have any injuries, but at times there are microtraumas, little lacerations, gouges out of the vaginal wall from, say, a fingernail. As nurses trained in this, we can detect those by looking. So if we don't do an exam with a speculum, we may not see those items or those injuries, which doesn't make or break the case. Our crime lab would tell you that some of the most valuable evidence comes from underwear worn immediately after the assault because of gravity, right? Drainage and things. It's okay. right up against the skin and the DNA just gets rubbed off right into the underwear. So I wouldn't say like a speculum exam or the, the swabs from that make or break a case. Can I have you clarify, does that mean, um, like, did you take all of their clothes? Do you just take their underwear if they had underwear? Like I've seen on television, and again, I don't know if this is an accurate representation, but like they kind of like um, scrape under fingernails. What does it mean when you're collecting evidence and what does that all include? So, yeah, those are great questions. So the nurse will determine based on the history where the best area of evidence would be. So if the patient says, I was vaginally assaulted, there was ejaculation, and I scratched him on the back, then the nurse will decide, okay, evidence to be collected would be vaginal swabs under the fingernails or anywhere else. So it's it's truly guided by the assault and the dynamics of the assault and what happened. There may be DNA evidence on her breasts because she reported that he was biting, licking her. There may be touch DNA because he had his hands around her neck and strangled her. So she will make those determinations about where the evidence should come from. What is touch DNA? So touch DNA is where the like assailant had his hands on the patient. There was no f necessarily fluids, so no saliva, no semen, but just he had his hands on her. So say she reported, he grabbed me by the thighs and held my thighs with, with his hands as he assaulted me. And she didn't shower, right? So she came directly to us. Then mm -hmm. there's a high likelihood that there is some touch DNA left from his hands there. If she says he touched me here and pointed to an area of her body, um, then we would just swab that area. Okay. And, and hope anything could come up. Correct. Yep. Just entirely based on history. There's a lot of factors that go into what may or may not be a possibility to collect. So like you mentioned mm -hmm. her clothes, the most valuable piece, as I mentioned, that our crime lab has told us is that underwear that's immediately worn yeah. after. But depending on the history, you know, I've had patients where the assailant ejaculated on her shoes. Um, so sure. I, I might want to collect those shoes. Now the patient also maybe not doesn't want to give up her shoes. They're like her favorite like heels or Doc Martens or whatever, you know, and we don't have yeah. to take them. So some options are just to swab those shoes or we can use <laughs> um, what's called a UV um, ultra, like ultraviolet light or alternative light source, turn all the lights off and we can fluoresce the clothes or fluoresce the patient. And if it fluoresces, that typically means there's some element of protein there could be semen you know, could be saliva. And that will direct us exactly where to choose swab if needed. I wanted to talk a little bit about the photography aspect that you mentioned. And I'm assuming that's kind of pretty um, equal to what we see on TV where you're measuring bruises or scrapes or bite marks and photographing what those look like and where they're located on the body. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and that's why we have training on it because, you know, they need to be clear photographs and we need to photograph well. So mm -hmm. each injury that we identify in that extensive head to toe exam that we will do, we will locate injuries that sometimes the patient is not even aware that they're there and we'll say, sure. okay, you know, here's this laceration or what have you, where, where did this come from? So we'll document what the patient says, oh, that's where he grabbed me. And then we will um, measure it. And then we take photographs. If each injury 
gets three photographs. So one photograph from like far away to kind of orient what part of the body this is on. So if it's on your arm, you know, we want to take a picture so that you can clearly see, oh, look, that's her left arm. I see a, a laceration there. Then we take another photograph close up with a measuring device. It's ideal to use forensic measuring devices. So an AFBO ruler that's black and white. And then the third photo is an extreme close up without the measuring device so that the nature of the injury is seen. We can at times, you know, apply filters to our photographs to better enhance what we can see with the naked eye. Most nurses use a forensic camera system that allows us to take a photo with a really nice um, camera, like a DSLR, that we don't have to really futz with the settings. It, it comes with a macro lens and a ring flash, and it's just all ready to go, almost like a point and shoot, but better. And then it stores it for us in a very secure way so that those photographs, which are sensitive, don't get put, you know, in the medical record necessarily, are kept under lock and key, are only released to, say, law enforcement with a, with a consent, to the DA only with a consent. Because we want to be sure those photos, some of them are genital photos. We want to be sure that they are protected and that we maintain our patient's trust. In the event yeah. that, say, a prosecutor wants to view those photos or a defense attorney, it's really good practice to say, sure, you can view those in my office it's where I can explain what it is you're viewing. We don't want them necessarily to get into the hands of the defendant or sure. portrayed in court if it's not needed. I could see why when you describe all that, why you wouldn't want a family member or if you, this has just happened to you, how hard that would be to like have someone listening. Cause you, I would think that maybe the whole truth wouldn't come out. Right. And that, that is a consideration. Uh, many times patients tell law enforcement one thing at the scene. And then once they're with us, they divulge more information like, yes, I was anally raped. Sometimes there's just too much shame to talk yeah. to some random male cop about what happened or they feel responsible. There's a lot of self-blame, especially if there was drinking involved or maybe I shouldn't have walked down that aisle or I shouldn't have taken that ride from that guy or whatever. To open up requires some rapport building that, again, as nurses, we're good at anyway. Like they would probably consider you as a comfort. They're having to say and do things that are uncomfortable, but it would be kind of more calming than to a cop. We hope so. I mean, imagine, yeah. you know, from a sexual assault, the body is the crime scene. Well, then there's the evidence, the crime scene on the victim, the body. We have to, you know, look at how we can collect that. So imagine, you know, like a, a random cop trying to collect these sensitive swabs from, you know, vaginal <laughs> yeah. It just wouldn't work, right? Or just wouldn't yeah. be the best experience at all. Or even a physician for that matter, um, or someone who's just not trained in how to do it. Um, it's more than yeah. a procedure. Do they have someone come in later too after you've done all that, like a, like a therapist, a psychologist or anything like that? The best practice is to have a sexual assault or domestic violence advocate present. And in our state, in, in some states, ours in particular, it is a law that they are entitled to have an advocate present throughout the process. So whether that's during the exam, during the trial, um, during any um, depositions or charging conferences. The one thing I do like about the role is, you know, my patients come in and they are one way, you know, they're traumatized typically when they yeah. come in. And even though I didn't fix what happened or erase what happened. And I don't even know like what the criminal justice result's going to be because mm. most of these never go to trial, right? There's just, that's just the nature of our criminal justice system and sexual assault. But they do leave my exam room a little better. They have a little color in their cheeks. They're walking upright, maybe crack a smile because we gave them their power back in giving them those yeah. choices and having somebody say, I'm sorry, this happened to you, or I believe you. <laughs> That's usually what they need to start that healing process. Yeah. Yeah. Like when they would leave there, they would feel a little bit weight off their shoulders, just kind of even just getting it out and saying what happened. Yes. And being supported and believed. Yeah. 
Do you ever get to find out the conclusions of any of your cases? It takes about a year or so for a patient, you know, once we see a patient, a year or so for it to reach, you know, say the trial. Sometimes, you know, we're like, oh, you know, like we'll get a subpoena to testify. And then we're like, okay, yep, I do remember this case. We'll go testify and then we'll leave. And then typically the prosecutor will reach back out and say, yep, we got a guilty verdict or no, we didn't. Oh, wow. Yeah. So sometimes we do find out and that's good to know because it gives us, it gives us some closure too. like, oh, good. You know, this one was bad or, you know, thank goodness for this or whatever. So yeah, I'm a curious person just like by nature with anything. And that would be, that would kill me because I would need to know some sort of conclusion, you know? Yes. And as nurses, we're very much like that too. So we want to know the results, but we don't always get it. We just try to to know that the difference we're making is in that moment there, and and that's what yeah. drives our work. How many cases are you doing a day? Are you are there days where you have no one coming in? Well, it depends on you know where a nurse works. So I work in Milwaukee, which is a very our largest city in Wisconsin. Last I checked, we saw close to nine hundred a year. There are times I'd see in an eight hour shift. Well, probably more like a 10-hour shift, I would see three to four patients. If I said the average case is four to five hours long, that's not including the documentation afterwards. It can wear on on a person if it's a busy program. In our rural areas, there's victims out there, but they're not necessarily coming in because it's just too far geographically or there's other barriers. Some programs or hospitals will only see maybe five a year. Mm. There's a lot of factors around that, but it, it really does depend on where you're practicing. And is that just because maybe they're not just coming in? Yeah, I believe it's more that access and barriers because the data shows that sexual assaults are happening. It's like one in five. Yeah. But not everyone presents for forensic exam because one, they might not know about it. Two, there might be misconceptions about what that means. Forensic services aren't really marketed by hospitals as much like, you know, their new cardiac robot. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not like a thing that people like talking about. It's usually through yeah. word of mouth or through law enforcement. So I think that those are big barriers. I mean, I've seen it on kind of special victims unit, but I just assumed it was, you know, a nurse within the hospital. And certainly, you know, we, you could train a random nurse to collect a kit because it is in and of itself just a procedure, but there's so much more that goes along with collecting that kit. And a lot of our patients opt to not have evidence collection. Instead, they just want documentation. They want an assessment. They want a risk assessment for sexually transmitted infections or pregnancy or referrals to Mm -hmm. counseling, right? Many times a kit isn't part of it, or a lot of people don't want to report to law enforcement for, for valid reasons. And then if you're seeing like a shot or a knife victim, are you having to like stitch them up and do all that too? Are you healing them and then talking to them? You know, we provide a lot more one-on-one than say the ER nurse. Concurrently, an ER nurse or staff will be treating that wound, cleaning, suturing, right? So they're doing that piece, the purely medical piece, and then we'll address the issues that are specific to that. So medical does come first. We want to make sure that, you know, we're not going to say delay uh, surgery just to collect evidence, right? But we will partner and, you know, I've gone into the OR just as they're about to perform surgery because we want to preserve that evidence, right? So as soon as a surgery occurs, you know, there's cleaning that happens to get the body prepped. Ideally, you know, we'll be in there to take a picture before, swab to preserve that DNA, and then they can go and clean and stitch, and then we'll take a photograph afterwards. Okay. Yeah, because I didn't even think of bite marks and stuff like that. Exactly. Say you get a positive, like, DNA extraction. How do you find out who that person is. So we'll collect the kit, the evidence, and if they're working with law enforcement, right, then law enforcement takes the kit and then it goes to our crime laboratory and gets processed. And that's outside of the realm of the hospital. They will process pieces of from that kit based on high probability of where DNA will be found. So they don't test everything in the kit. They will test, oh, if there was a vaginal salt and there's vaginal swabs, I'm going to test that first. And if there's a foreign DNA found, outside of what belongs to the patient. Um, They do upload or run it in CODIS, which is the the national database for offender profiles. And that's how they can determine if there's a match. How something gets entered into CODIS um, is through FBI rules. I know that much from our crime lab. 
Okay. Yeah. So like if it's just a Joe Schmo who has no record, no whatever, and no prior anything, they would need to find him somehow to then get his DNA to test it against if he's not within that system. Right. So there might be a DNA profile, but they don't know who it belongs to. I wonder if there is like, um, since it's in the system somewhere and say 20 years down the road, something happens and they catch someone, would they be able to find that evidence from 20 years back? Our crime lab DNA supervisor, I think was involved in a case very similar to what you described, where there was like a a cold case here in Wisconsin back, oh, some 20 years ago. And they eventually found the perpetrator. It was a sexual assault slash homicide case. And they found it from a DNA profile that they were able to lift off of old evidence and um, link into CODIS through genealogy, like through some fancy technology that they use to identify, you know, family members who share DNA and then ruling it down to like a brother and then going from there. That's wild. Yeah. It's super interesting. That is. Because I would think that there would be a lot of those. Not every person has a prior record. Has there been a case that you've worked that has stuck with you and kind of changed maybe who you are, your perception of the world? You know, there's a case that stands out for me. And when I think back about why that is, because I like to say, you know, any aspect of nursing is hard. Many nurses would say, how can you do this work? And I'm like, well, how can you do hospice nursing? Like, you know, there's always aspects (laughs) that are like hard, right? But this case stuck with me. And when I looked back as to why, I think it was because the victim um, was a young girl. She was 12 or 13. She was, she was the same age as my daughter. Not only that, but she kind of looked like my daughter. Their family dynamic was very, very similar. She lived in the town just over, very similar to us. And I think that's why it hit me more because I identified with her more. Whereas some of my other patients, I'm able to keep that distance. Like this is them. I am me. I'm treating you. I'm a nurse. I'm professional, right? And maintain that um, professional distance. What struck me about her was just her vulnerability, how this could so easily happen to a, a young teen and the ramifications. And then, you know, how the parents like, it's it's hard, you know, it's your child and what happened. And, and her assault was recorded on social media and, oh my gosh. you know, the parents learning about that. And I just, it, it was hard. The dynamics are really what stuck with me. And I worried about the girl like, oh my gosh, you know, she needs a trauma counselor. There was other issues prior to this that in my view led up to this, you know, and, and nobody saw it. And, yeah, you know, so that stuck with me more. And I, I still think about her and wonder how she is. Yeah. How does that affect your parenting? I feel like, like you said, when you see a victim that comes in that could very well have been your own child. I feel like I would never want my kids to leave ever. Like, yeah, (laughs) Rapunzel, you're in the tower situation. Or, I mean, you know, like I said, Milwaukee, like I know all the bars that (laughs) victims were drugged at. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, you know, all the locations these people were coming from. But as far as how it changed my parenting, I mean, like, I feel like I, I talked to my kids early and and often about consent. I have twins. I have a boy and a girl, you know, so mm-hmm. I talk to them about that, what that means repeatedly. Social media. At one point, though, I remember my daughter a couple of years ago made the comment to me, we were arguing about who she was friending on Snapchat, right? That's when I started to lose control about who she's friending, right? Because it's just one big, sure. whoop, you know, and she made the comment. She said, not everyone is a predator. That hit me like, okay, maybe I am being too, you know, like I'm taking this home too much and I'm viewing the world through this lens. So that stuck with me a little bit. And so at this point, you know, they're, they're 16, they're going to be 17 soon. And there comes a point where you just have to kind of trust, you know, that you've done enough and that they understand and just keep having those conversations. But they know what I do. They've known what I've done for a long time. When my pager would go off, they would sigh and say, why do people rape other people? You know, even at 10 years old. Yeah. I think they kind of know what, what that is. I think to the point almost where, you know, maybe they're 
not as um, exploratory with, you know, sex as their peers. I think they probably haven't yeah. done as much as some of their peers and that's okay. You know, they'll, they'll come around. Yeah. There's no yeah. rush, you know. <laughs> There's no rush. <laughs> with my kids, I, I mean, they're younger, 11 and nine, but like, I've always just told them from the very beginning, like, you don't walk off with strangers. This is what happens at the strangers' houses and it's not fun. I feel like they need to know what 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 that means and what happens, you know? Or have a safe place. I even tell my kids if ever you are upset here, right? And there's something going on and you get that inkling to run away or leave, don't. I give them a number like here called Pathfinders. It's a really great organization in Milwaukee for runaway youth. I don't want them on the street. Within 48 hours, yeah. they will be approached by a trafficker, right? So it's like, I know that. Yeah. And I tell them that like, no, call a, tr call a different trusted parent. Call this agency. If you can't reach yeah. out to me, that's okay. Go to someone else that is, you know, trustworthy. And so they have that information too. So you know, maybe that came from what I've seen, these girls who are on the street for longer than 48 hours and, and then they're in a trafficking situation. I think more parents should just be open to that. Like you might not be the one that they're going to talk to and that's okay, but direct them to where they can go. Maybe it's just how you're brought up, but I was brought up with like, we never really talked about anything, but I'm trying to be different with, you know, my kids because we've had a couple incidences like when my younger son when we were at a jumpy place and he wandered off, but I kind of had to lay it down and tell him like, this is what happens. You know, you'll be in someone's house and this is what they're going to do to you. And might've been extreme at five, but you're not there to have a fun day and have a fun time, you know? Exactly. Even at that age. And that's why it's, I'm such a proponent too, of teaching correct anatomy to young kids using the terms vulva, vagina, penis, instead of made up names, because it keeps them safer. If somebody who shouldn't be touching them, they're not able to disclose, you know, because it, it's a yeah. mystery. It's, you know, something shameful. We shouldn't be talking about that. No. I, I agree with that. My, um, my sister-in-law is a preschool teacher and she had a little girl a couple of years ago that just kind of showed some signs of trauma or something going on at home. She would be terrified to go into the restrooms by herself and she would scream and throw all these fits. And so one day uh, she was just sitting with her and kind of trying to talk to her about, you know, why she's afraid or whatever. And she basically was saying that her uncle was doing stuff to her, her bottom, but she didn't call it her bottom. She called it something else. And so, you know, my sister-in-law went to the principal to report it and they, you know, called child services and basically child services told her, well, because she didn't say, but, or bottom or, you know, anus, any of the appropriate words, we can't really do much about that because she didn't say my sister-in-law was like flabbergasted that it was like, she's five. Like she's not going to say those things. And so I've always been the same with you. Like I just, they are what they are. That's the correct terminology for them, you know, and you need to know what it is so that you can explain correctly if something happened. Right. I mean, age appropriate language, of course, but for sure, you know, we, part of our role is community education as well and outreach when we're not seeing patients. And we talk about these subjects, you know, our, our whole goal is to reduce violence in the community. Right. And we, we try to drill that home as well to community groups, parents, patients. Do you ever see women that repeatedly come in because they're being abused by a spouse? And I feel like that would just be the most frustrating situation. Yes, we do. You know, it takes an average of seven attempts for a woman to successfully leave a domestic mm -hmm. violence situation. Many times, too, my patients I see have been strangled by their partner. You know, mm -hmm. our research has found that a strangulation attempt, you know, while it wasn't fatal in that moment, that male will likely kill her. Some of those men also go on to become mass shooters as well. Um, so they are yeah. a danger. But when we see those patients, um, we do have a tool, a screening tool called a danger assessment. Um, this was developed by Dr. Jackie Campbell, who was a pioneer in domestic violence for women. And we use that screening tool to kind of help 
show patients what their lethality is if they return to the situation. Not so much to, you know, get them to leave right then and there because we know the dynamics. It's difficult. Some of them, you know, sure. they rely on their husband for the finances and they can't leave. They have children, housing, you know. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. You know, can at least tell them like, hey, this is what's this is where you're at and we can help them perhaps safety plan. They're kind of doing that with um I do hair. And they're starting to do training courses for us to um, kind of recognize like domestic abuse or women or children or whoever it is like in situations because people tend to tell us a lot of stuff, good and bad. But um, that's amazing that they're training you on that because, yeah, I mean, it, it takes a village, right? So if they disclose yeah. to somebody, we're working on that, I think, just nationwide, like how to better address that and have people more prepared to respond to those things or having the resources yeah. more publicly available. This is just a question I wanted to see if you could shed some um, information on just in case anyone's listening that's in a position like that. When they do come in um, for domestic violence, are they able to, I guess, file a police report without their spouse knowing so that there's some sort of documentation of their injuries? How could they maybe take steps so that there's some sort of paper trail of what happened without their spouse finding out or anything like that if they're worried about that? That's a great question. Um, so yeah, that is one benefit to coming and seeing a forensic nurse for those circumstances. So they can, you know, when they see us, because we do such an extensive history, you know, more than an ER nurse would, and mm -hmm. on top of just screening, like then we ask more detailed questions about the nature of the um, violence in the home and the dynamics of it and injuries and the history. So we will document all that. So that's documented. It's in their medical record and confidential. So that would be, you know, an extent, a paper trail for them, okay. you know, if they were to want to keep this confidential in the moment and only act when they're ready to. If they were to involve law enforcement, at least in Wisconsin, law enforcement has a statute where there's a mandatory arrest of one party in a domestic dispute. Okay. So they okay. would have to do respond, right? So, but by coming to us um, without involving police, we can keep that record for them. The other thing that's going through my head is like, if I was in these rooms listening to these stories, I don't know how I myself wouldn't break into tears and like start crying for of just pure empathy for these individuals. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard. Some have made me tear up. Others, you know, have not. It's been more, I've just been able to take care of him or her. Yeah. And you know, when, and that's happened to the best of us where we have tears and the, the patient sees those tears and that's okay. They sense our compassion and empathy and it it just adds to them wanting to confide in us and um, help them. And once, especially when they understand what our role is, you know, we, we don't have to involve yeah. law enforcement and this is what we can offer you. And just that one-on-one -on -one presence supporting them is, is huge. Do you ever have the parents that want or the loved one that wants to talk to you afterwards? Are you able to talk to them? So with parents, you know, like with minor children, yes, we do talk to the parents. If it's an adolescent, we will talk to the child alone about the nature of the assault. Because again, that's a more pure disclosure. Mm -hmm. Similar to when doctor's offices like to ask about sexual activity or drug use without the parents. Like they're probably going to be more inclined to, to tell you. In Wisconsin, teenagers have the right to receive our services, medications for sexually transmitted infections and emergency contraception without parental consent. It's good um, because, you know, eventually the parent will find out, right? They are minors. They can request their medical records. They will be involved in, you know, if there's a law enforcement investigation. So obviously the parents are going to find out. But the spirit of the law, the way I um, see it, is it allows that minor in that moment to get the emergency services they need without jeopardizing their health. So emergency contraception, like that's timely. They need that then and there, they'll get it and there won't be anything to stop them. And so there's been a few ruffled, you know, conversations with parents who didn't want their children to have those medications, but the child wanted it and I will give it. And I, yeah. you know, have conversations with the parents and say, look, I'm sorry, I'm a parent myself. I can understand, you know, because they're, they've never been in this situation, right? So they're like, this is my child. I make medical decisions. Yes, but not in this case. And really we should focus on, this is what your child needs. Let's focus on that 
right? They need STI medication for a reason. They need emergency contraception for a reason. And we'll deal with the after effects and everything that happened later, but I will be giving the medication. Uh, it's a hard conversation to have. Just being supportive and firm with the parents has helped. Yeah, because I would assume that even some of that would be maybe a religious aspect too. There is. Yep. There's, there's misconceptions about emergency contraception. It's not an abortion pill. Um, it's, it's purely designed to prevent um, fertilization, right? So, you know, it's not going to affect uh, implanted embryo. And we often have to have those discussions with patients themselves, you know, for their own religious beliefs. They're worried about, you know, that. Or even the concept, some of these uh, patients think, oh, gosh, I'm no longer, you know, quote, a virgin. That's hard. You know, we can't solve that in the moment. But I, I just try to tell patients, look, uh, you know, I personally feel the concept of virginity is, is just that, a social construct that you're not changed because of this man. This event changed you. Obviously, it's a trauma, and so you will learn from it. It'll, it'll change how you view the world, but fundamentally, you are still the same person, and virginity or sex is something you give to somebody. That concept is, is something that you decide, but those are, you know, you can't solve that in a four-hour office visit. Yeah. You kind of have to have a little bit of therapy with your job, too. Yeah. You have to, you know, say the right things. You can't just swoop in and out, you know, like an emergency room nurse, you know, has other patients to t attend to. That's why these visits take as long as they do, you know, the assault history in itself and then the, the issues around it. And patients have a hard time describing what happened to them in the alleyway. Um, and they cry and, or, or they don't cry. Right. And, and they're just balled up on the couch or they're very yeah. animated. You know, there's all different responses and, and just yeah. allowing them the time and space to, to say what they need to say. It's fantastic what you do. And we need more forensic nurses, that's for sure. A lot of the nurses who come into this work start off with, you know, they were nurses, but they had an interest in forensic stuff. Yeah. And when they learned about this, like, well, this, you know, this is a nice, a nice blend. Yeah, it really is. I'm talking to the crime lab. I'm talking with prosecutors. I'm, you know, working with law enforcement and your partners are different, you know, than they were in the hospital. In the hospital, you have lab and you've got, you know, radiology. And with us, we've got all these external partners and, and you learn to work together and it's, it's really cool. I, I love it. I mean, I've, I've always kind of been interested in, you know, the criminal justice system slightly, or even the legal system, you yeah. know, so testifying in court, I used to be scared of it. And now I enjoy it. It's like educating somebody, you're talking to the jury. And I like seeing the difference I make in my patients in that moment. So I, I can see the difference, however minute in these patients when they leave, to just have somebody dedicated to them for four hours to reassure them that everything is okay, or this is what you can do, or help broach law enforcement with them. and Comforting. Yes. And, you know, who would want somebody collecting evidence from their vagina, not from a nurse? Yeah. You know, it's like, of course. And same goes for suspects. Like, we do see suspects. Law enforcement will bring suspects into the hospital to have DNA collected via a court order or a subpoena. And sometimes those suspects are like, no, I don't want you to um, swab, you know, my penis. Law enforcement's like, okay, that's fine. So either the nurse will do it or I will. And most suspects will look <laughs> at, you know, officer so-and-so and then they'll just be like, okay, yeah. I, I'd rather this nice nurse, you know, sw swab my penis. Yeah. And so they do because we're, right. we're kind and gentle and, and they're our patient. Yeah. So we will treat them with okay. dignity and respect and, and all that. So with what you do, the picturing, like, I wish there was a program that like they get like a stuffed animal or something to hug or something while they're doing the process. Yes, they do. That's part of our repertoire, especially oh, where we, I used to work. Yes. Stuffed animals, comfort items. My daughter used to paint little message rocks. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh, I wish I could like donate my kids stuffed animals to something oh, like that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Or we could always use, you know, clean brand new underwear because when we take patients clothing, right, we have to give them something to wear out. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Yes. So we often have replacement clothing, new stuff, anything, tops, bottoms, sports bras, underwear to maintain their dignity. Many places, hospitals have showers for them because if they come to us right from the scene, 
we collect their evidence. Great. Now they just want to shower and they can take as long as they want in that shower. And we offer them shampoo and conditioner and toothbrush. Like a little slice of home. How would I go about finding it? I just would call like maybe the hospital and see if they have a, a program that would take a donation. Call the, the hospital or in your state, you know, Google sexual assault programs or forensic yeah. nurse programs, and it should bring up a list of hospitals in your area. Or certainly advocacy agencies would know, okay, like where are the sane sexual assault nurse examiner programs or forensic nurse programs, and they could point you to because they're scattered throughout the nation, but um, we all practice the same way. We follow the same standards. I would think that even just a little thing like that would be comforting. Even if you're over 18, I would want to snuggle a bear. Yep. I worked side by side with a trauma counselor and she would see patients with me in the moment. And during the exam, she would ask, you know, what's your favorite animal? And and they're like, oh, you know, a cat. And then she'd go and find one of our new stuffed kitties and bring it to the patient. And she would just like light up, Uh, like, oh my gosh. And she would just hug that little stuffy and it would get her through. That warms my heart. I'm glad that that is a a thing. (laughs) Is there a misconception that maybe you want to clear up for anyone listening that ever is like debated going into um, a hospital to seek out any sort of help? But there's so many misconceptions, like how to choose. (laughs) There's so many misconceptions. (laughs) Um, I'd say some of the the bigger ones that come to mind are that when you come to the hospital for this type of exam, that that means you are reporting to law enforcement. And that is not true. Coming to us doesn't mean you're reporting the crime. Okay. The other big one is that, you know, we cannot tell what happened to you. We can't look at you and say, oh, yep, there was there was a penis there. You know, we, we can't do that. We can see, you know, like, oh, there's some injuries there. We can't make a determination where they came from because some of those injuries, like I mentioned, can come from other things, tampons, your own fingers, right? So we can't make a determination. We can say, oh, those findings are consistent with what you're telling me, but we can't make a determination. We also can't you know, if we are swabbing for DNA and collecting that kit, we don't know those results right then and there. We're swabbing and sending it to the crime lab, and that's a process. And the other thing, the hymen is probably the most misunderstood piece of anatomy in the female genitalia. People are often thinking, okay, well, if I had sex, especially if it's a prepubescent uh, girl or adolescent, like, well, her hymen will be missing. That is a myth. <laughs> the hymen, think of it like a scrunchie. Uh, that we use for hair. It's circular and and encircles the vaginal opening and doesn't cover the vaginal opening completely. So the first time you have intercourse, it's not necessarily broken. And in fact, many hymens we see have no injuries whatsoever. Wow. The whole concept of an intact hymen or whatever is is a myth. So those are probably the the top misconceptions that and also that you know physicians do these exams like on yeah. TV we all love SVU all of us in this discipline mm-hmm. um, we love yeah. um, Olivia Benson she has a foundation that works for survivors so we love her but um, you know the misconception is that they bring the patient in via law enforcement to the hospital and they're like well she's gonna have a rape kit what were the rape kit results the doctor is not going to be doing that exam it's going to be a nurse always and um, you know if the Law enforcement asked us, well, you know what happened? Not only do I need consent, but assuming I did have consent to talk to the officer, I'd say, well, these were my findings. Like she had a scratch, she had a laceration down there. Um, you know, I, we collected a kit. Here you go. Those are probably the top, top five. <laughs> do you ever have people that come back to you that maybe you treated the night of their assault that reach out to you later down the line to thank you? Um, not directly. We've learned of survivors who say um, will be in touch with an advocacy organization throughout their journey and then will comment like, you know, I'm really grateful for the help I got, you know, at the hospital or whatever. But what we found is when those patients come in by us, that visit is a blur. Like surreal, like they're not even there. Yes. They, you know, most people can only remember three things anyway from, you know, a hospital when a, when a doctor's talking to you or a nurse telling you what, to, you know, your education, what you need to do. But what they do remember is how they felt. So many times yeah. they don't remember what we did or even like, did they collect evidence? You know, they'll have to look back at their paperwork to know, but they will remember, gosh, yeah, I felt okay. 
in that space or I felt safe or that nurse was kind. Well, you do some amazing work, Susie, and I don't know how you you do it. You are a warrior. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) The results we see on our patients, I think, is what continues to drive us to, to move on and keep doing this and just knowing that we're making a difference. That's all nurses want to do is we want to make a difference and we can see it with these patients. And when we know to look for it, especially if you're new and you're like, I don't know, you know, I need that guilty verdict. You know, you might not get that. And that's not why we're there. We're there for the patient. And when we look for it and we can see it, then it it feeds our soul. Right. You want to do the fun questions? Susie, we're going to switch over and just do some lighthearted, silly questions just to kind of end on a warm and fuzzy note. It'll be uh, our equivalent to a stuffed animal. (laughs) What's your favorite snack? I'm more of a savory person, so I'd I'd have to say probably like cheese. (laughs) Ooh, okay. What do you eat when you're at work and you're on your shift? Yeah, at work. Well, then it's like pretty much whatever I can get from the vending machine. So I try not to eat that stuff anymore and try to like plan ahead (laughs) and bring healthy things. But usually it's it's that. At times it's been super rewarding to you know I just had a long patient and now I get to sit down and chart my patient's gone and we'll order a pizza. And there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that you don't have another patient. You can just sit down and chart and dedicate your time and brain power to your charting while eating pizza. Pizza, especially when you could sit and enjoy it, is always nice. For sure. I always like to ask everybody this one is, um, what's something that you hoard? Oh, Coffee cups. Yeah. I've got a thing with coffee cup. Like we like to purchase a coffee cup from someplace that we've traveled to. Oh, fun. I find that like coffee tastes better in certain cups. Like I just have like this thing. I like that one. I haven't heard a coffee cup collection. And I do like that it tastes different in each mug. It does. Yes. What is one of your hobbies? Um, strangely, photography. Um, oh, a, okay. a couple of years ago, my husband purchased a DSLR camera for me. I wanted to take pictures of my kids, you know, and, and just learn how to do that. I, I took some online courses about how to shoot in manual mode and adjust the aperture and stuff. And when I have yeah. free time and, and when I want to, my kids even sometimes ask to be photographed. So I do that. Nice. That's a fun hobby. Okay, this is a random one, Susie. When you're getting ice out of the refrigerator and some of the ice falls onto the floor, do you pick it up or do you kick it under the fridge? So our our fridge is, is on a hardwood floor, but then adjacent is like the opening to our garage and we have linoleum there. So I'll kick it to the linoleum. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't want the right, hardwood so much floor to have it. easier than like picking it up. You just kick it over. Right. <laughs> If you were cast in a true crime series, who would play you? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, so in my younger years, people used to think I look like Sandra Bullock. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, I would choose probably her. She would do a good job, I think. I love her. Okay, I think I'll end with what's your favorite holiday? Oh, gosh. Halloween. Oh, that's mine too. Yeah, Halloween. We love fall and all that goes along with it. I just don't like winter, but yeah, Halloween. We got married in October. You did? Oh, yeah. that's so cool. I picture it like um, probably in Wisconsin. I picture it like um, Hocus Pocus. Oh, totally. Yep. That's that's really pretty much what it ends up to be around. Occasionally, sometimes it's like a stiff wind will come and blow all the leaves off. And then it's like suddenly looks like winter. But for the most part, yeah, it, it looks like that. Feel Halloween-y. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you for talking to us. We really appreciate it. And I learned so much and I really have so much respect for what you do. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. a hard hard job like I feel like my my chest feels like a little tight like I feel a little stressed. I don't feel like that I feel but I feel like she does like like I feel like a warm snuggle from a stuffed animal no I don't feel like that I mean <laughs> she feels like that like her personality is so endearing and kind and sweet but I literally feel really? so stressed I just couldn't imagine absorbing all of that trauma I think it would really change my personality. Like, honestly, like I think I would cry 
all the way home, coming home from work. I think I'm too emotional. I think I'm too emotional for a job. I think like I that. would cry too, but I feel like I could maybe do that job. I mean, I would love to be a badass and think that I could do that job because I think what she's doing is really amazing. And I love that it definitely, like she said, it combines the like people care with like the science, which I think is rad. But I think you'd have to count me out. I don't feel like I felt sick when we did autopsy. See, I felt the opposite. I think that's so you felt like a warm, snuggly bear. Not warm like a bear and like I'm cozy and I want to settle in, but more like I'm going to see a brain and that's when am I ever going to see a brain? When am I ever going to see like an organ exposed or like peeling skin back? To me, the science behind all of that drives it so much that I think I don't think about, again, this is all hypothetical because I could pretty much get in that room and maybe just hit the floor. So who knows for sure. No, but, um, I don't think that I could handle the emotional toll. I feel like I could handle the emotional toll. I don't know why. Like I told you, people will come up and just yak with me at the store. Like, well, I mean, a hairdresser's cape is like a magical thing because you really do put your guard down. Like some of the stories I've told my hair people, I'm like, how do I call them that? (laughs) You know, like I know I don't hang out with them. They don't know me. Like, you know what I mean? But you feel just like, like warm like and fuzzy couch. Yeah. hundred percent. I just saw this meme that was saying it was like, um, if my hairdresser sees you, she hates you too. Cause she knows everything about you. <laughs> like it was like, oh, so that's so true. But I, the only aspect of this job that I think I couldn't do the Vigi talk, like the, like <laughs> you get so weirded out. I think you just need to say it over and over. Vagina. Oh, it was, I was dying. <laughs> I'm just going to make you an audio tape of me saying all the proper genitalia terms so you can like fall asleep too. Like nipple. Like what? No. Think about the nature of questions that she has to Mm. ask. Like did X and X penetrate X and X? Like think about, I just like, I can't, I can't have that conversation with somebody because I wouldn't be able to stomach it. Yeah. It's too awful. Yeah. But I will say. And I think everybody that listened to this episode should reach out to their local hospitals or Google forensic nursing in your area, because I'm going to go buy a bunch of panties and take them to the hospital. And a couple bears. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think about that, but like how, like that, like how humiliating. That's what I mean. You have to like leave with like some paper underwear they give you. I know. You know, so like, thank God that they're giving them or a like change of clothes. like that mesh underwear and, they give you after you have a baby? Oh, please. No. Yes. no. I just know that like when my kids, like, especially, you know, my younger one, he, you know him with his bears. He loves yep. them. Yep. And I just pictured like he just needs his blue bear. I mean, I think even me, when I get anxious, I need a fluffy pillow. Right. Like, I literally have to like cuddle a fluffy pillow because I'm like on that edge of like having a breakdown so in that room I would want a fluffy pillow to hold on to and like shove against my stomach because the reality like because you you would think that you're you're in there alone because if I was if I was married I am married (laughs) if this happened to me I wouldn't want Will in there like I I wouldn't want him to hear I feel like I would be holding back because I would be holding back Yep. Because of their feelings. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to need the blanket, the fluffy pillow and Susie so that I can get through. But I feel, I mean, I feel stressed right now. I really do. This one is the first one I think that stresses, has literally stressed me out. Like where your spit's getting a little bit, a little bit thinner. Yeah. Like I just feel, I really feel this like tightness on my chest and this kind of like, (laughs) um, anxious feeling. Oh, I'm glad you finally have experienced that. <sighs> yeah. But isn't it ironic that it's the emotional stuff that makes me anxious? <laughs> There's something wrong with that. What does my therapist gonna say about that? <laughs> you know, that is ironic. <laughs> right? I mean, oh I've been told I get really uncomfortable with displays of emotion. <sighs> I, uh, you know, Jaya, she always is telling me like, I just like to see you squirm when I tell you how much I love you. Oh, see, I don't like, like that stuff it either. It makes me uncomfortable. Like Please my stop. family was never a hugger family. 
But I almost feel like like you know, like Daddy's Home too. Like, have you seen that movie? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, there's the Will uh, Ferrell family, and then there's that are like kissing at the airport, and then yeah. there's the other family that's like, hey. And hey, I feel like bump. yeah, yeah. And I feel like I was brought up with the Hay family. So yeah. then I feel like I'm too old to incorporate. Like, like we can't even go there because we missed our window. It's too late. Yeah, the ship. But is I sealed. can talk to you. So maybe that's why. But then I feel like it's circumstantial. So if I have a kid or an adult who's just gone through this experience and they need a hug, then it's appropriate for me to hug you. I don't need to hug you every Tuesday when I see you. <laughs> you, know? you don't. Yeah, you don't need a hug with the yeah, greeting. Yeah, no. Or leaving. Like I just, yeah. I'm leaving. I'll see like, you later. Why do I got to hug you? Yeah, I get that. I don't that. even think I have hugged you in my life knowing you. Have we? I don't <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think we have. You're not a memorable hugger, I guess, because if we did, I didn't remember it. But if you were hurting and you needed a hug, I would give you that hug. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I don't need a lot of like uh, physical Yeah, that's not, your, that's not your language, your love not language. Not what was all. yours? Acts of love? Like, like presence? <laughs> yeah, yeah, gifts. <laughs> and mine is um, doing something, acts of love. I get uncomfortable when people give me presents. I don't like that. You don't like it? See, but I love to give presents. I think sometimes yeah, I know I'm you more do. excited about giving the present yeah. than you love ever a getting them. I just love to give That's presents. where I think your thoughtfulness comes in. So maybe you can be the the... And work in this aspect, but you can be the. I'll go get um, the teddy bear. You could be the I'll bear go get girl. You the bear. You want the? You want a bear? A blanket? Yeah. Peanut butter M and M's. What do you need? Yeah, you're the. You're that the, I can do. And maybe there's I, a that's need also for you. Fix my personality. Like I'm a fixer. Like let me get in here and make you feel better. But I don't want to talk. I don't want to hear about <laughs> it. I can't absorb it. You're gonna have to talk until to Nikki. we get to the anatomy part, and then I'm out. And then we'll swap. Yeah. We'll, We'll bring then in we a third person because yeah. there was a lot we'll bring of Susie in. So we can just like, we'll have a nice little triangle system. But I think that she is all three and that's the magic. You need to that be all three. Magic. It's magic. Yeah. Like need she to be all really three. is an incredible human And I really being. am going to look into um, where I could do a bear because that just like my heart hurts. Well, if we find anything good, we'll link it on the episode notes. But we definitely would encourage you listeners to check in your home states. But if we do find something that is a nationwide program that you can yeah. donate to, we'll we'll link it up. All right. All right. I'm so glad well, finally you got one you can't handle. <laughs> Just please no more of these emotional ones. Go back to the blood and guts and gore because that, that I can handle all day. All right. Till next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at body to burial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. <laughs>